Welcome to the Betrayal Trauma SOS Podcast. I'm your host, Jenny Brockbank, and I am learning beside you. Today, we are discussing how to help a loved one with a sex addiction. Let's learn together. So glad you're here today. This isn't therapy, and I'm not a therapist, and I highly recommend qualified professional help for your situation. If you came looking for an episode last week and didn't find one, I just wanted to explain that sometimes life takes your breath away, and it certainly did the last couple of weeks. And it was a rough, 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 rough while there. Uh, Hasn't lifted all the way, so I'm a one woman show, and I want to be consistent for everybody, but at the same time, I need to be able to take care of my family. So hopefully people understand that. And thank you. Thank you for being here. And for those who checked, it just means a great deal to me. As we get into today's episode, I want to send a special thank you to TM. TM struggles with addiction and was generous to send me some information and some resources to look into and a quote, which I'll share later today. So I greatly appreciate that. Thank you. Today, we're talking about how to help a loved one who struggles with a sex addiction. And I'll begin by telling you how I once tried to help my loved one with a sex addiction. And let me tell you, it was crazy and effective, crazy and effective. It wasn't until we sat in our formal disclosure that I learned that me giving my husband sex on demand whenever he wanted, basically, for the most part, was completely ineffective. Completely. Came to learn that I couldn't fix his sex addiction with sex. I couldn't fix it by keeping the kids quiet or the house in better order or by making his favorite meals. I couldn't fix it by uh, controlling his emotions. There were times when my husband was just not doing well at all, like unexplained anger just his mood was off. And I found out that sex could be used to control their mood a bit. And so this is controlling. And it never ever once fixed the underlying problem. Not one time. Early in recovery, I was very concerned about if he had done his assignments, you know, or if he was going to go with me to a meeting or if he was going to follow through on his own meetings. And these things never helped either. The question remains then, what can we do? What power is there? And there are things that we can do, thankfully. (laughs) But probably the first thing is to let go of the idea that we cannot fix them. We'll discuss more on surrender later this episode. Probably the first step for me that was helpful was learning about sex addiction looking at brain scans and seeing, oh my goodness, this does something to people. Physically, it does harm. In fact, it harms the prefrontal cortex. And so their ability to make logical decisions sometimes isn't there. And it's partly why some of them can lie without much of a a conscience behind that, why they can act out and hide that without feeling a ton of guilt. It's because there has been some literal damage from that happening. Why is that important to know? Why do we need to know anything about that? And for me, it takes out the shame. 
It's like, it's not about me. It's about this unhealthy coping mechanism. And my husband is using something that seems to help him in the moment, but is very harmful in the long run. It's harmful to him. And then it's harmful to our family and to our marriage. The next tip I can't underestimate the importance of, and it's to not shame shame the person who's struggling with an addiction. I know that's so tempting sometimes, especially after being harmed, after being hurt in such destructive and painful ways. But in the long run, shame just feeds addiction and it helps no one. The problem is that sex addiction carries with it an extra heavy layer of shame. And I'll demonstrate this by telling you about something that happened when I first started doing a podcast. This podcast, that is. And I post on Instagram often. But when I was beginning, I wasn't sure what was crossing a line and what would be okay. And I really hemmed and hawed about this one thing that I was sharing, that I was considering sharing, actually. And it said this, quote, I could finally see that for him, porn was the needle to obtain the drug of choice. Close quote. Just for a little context about how this quote came to be, And this was actually a really key thing for me to know, like we talked about understanding addiction. And I walked out of our our therapeutic disclosure realizing, oh my gosh, it's addiction. He's after dopamine. The amount that he was uh, turning to, to those things was actually pretty stunning. And I realized I had nothing to do with it, period. But I, I decided I wasn't sure. I mean, Could I say that porn was a needle? It just made it seem to me, in my mind, so much worse. So I brought it to my husband, and I was very surprised by his reaction. There was relief on his face, and he was in total agreement that I could post that. When I realized that having an addiction to something like meth or heroin um, was less shaming to him than having an addiction to pornography, I was pretty shocked. I was floored, actually. And just seeing that gave me an added measure of compassion. It also gave me a great deal of respect for him allowing me to do this podcast um, so that others can receive information. I feel like it was a generous and kind thing to do. Something else that I do to help with shame is I do my best to not use the word addict. You'll notice I go to extreme lengths, and it might not even be good for my SEO, um, that in titles that I'll say someone's struggling with addiction or something like that. And the term addict to me labels someone. I will say that in my therapy circles, I do use that term addict. Um, I think it's just easier and people know what you're talking about kind of thing. But to my husband in public settings, I do my very best to not use that word. However, having said that, I don't judge others who use it, and some find it freeing to use that word in association uh, with their addiction or to label themselves as addicts. I once had a conversation with some people in recovery who've been doing this quite a bit longer than we have, and I really admire this couple a great deal. And I mentioned my thought on using the term addict, and I could see the uncomfortableness about that. And my friend explained to me 
that she had seen people feel like they had conquered it. They had become clean. They had just, it wasn't an issue for them anymore. And that they had fallen into relapse that had led to far greater consequences than what they were originally in. And so she felt like the term addict had some power to it. So take it for what it's worth. I am not the expert on the matter. I'll just say what I try to do and um, not judge anybody else for their opinions on that. But a way to not shame my husband um, for his for his addiction and, and those types of things would be, for example, if he came to me and he said, hey, I had a slip, I might respond with something like, hey, I appreciate you told me that. It's courageous. I'm going to be honest that that really hurts, and I'm going to need some time and some space and some some self-care. So thank you for telling me. I need to go take care of myself. So in that instance, I would be both honoring the truth that he gave me, not shaming him, while also taking care of myself. Now, he might feel shame because I'm going to go take care of myself and do those things. I can't actually fix that. That's one of those fixing things, right? I can't fix how he's going to take what I need, um, but I can say that I'm not shaming him for his actions. I'm just taking care of myself and what I need. Which brings me into the next subject, and that is boundaries. And those who struggle with addiction generally hate boundaries. Typically, they've lived with, with people who haven't put in boundaries like like me. I didn't have boundaries. I didn't even think that was a good or worthy or righteous thing to do. And so I had no boundaries. I thought they were controlling. And in the end, they provided the safety and the healing. I could not heal without them. And to be honest, neither could he. Boundaries are kind. They're kind to us. They're kind to them. Episode 11 of the Betrayal Trauma SOS podcast, this podcast, is all about boundaries. And if you'd like to delve deeper into that, I suggest you go there. In the beginning, when I implemented boundaries, I did it in this way that was was actually probably shaming. And there was some control in it. It was a learning experience to figure out how to do that. Boundaries are about what we will do not what we will expect others to do. However, in the case of addiction, I would just like to share my own opinion about something. And that is that when my husband has slipped or he is um, relapsed or anything like that, that I do not feel safe. I just don't. I don't feel safe in his proximity. There's usually been some kind of manipulation or um, gaslighting, some kind of twisting of the truth that makes me feel very unsafe in his presence. And the fact that I'm not sure that he's living in truth also just doesn't feel right to be that close to him. And so I do know this is that I need my space. So in such cases, I ask him to leave our bedroom to stay somewhere else, whether that be another place or whether that be another place in our home, depending on the situation, of course, because each one is a little different. But honoring that and and the difference to me in that, because I'm asking him to do something, is that I'm asking him to give me safety. However, he can refuse to do that. He can. And then I would notice that 
I would see that, um, like Real Croshaw, she talks about that if somebody's in recovery, they're humble, they're honest, and they're accountable. Well, for sure, if he's not willing to give me safety, then he's not being humble and he's not being accountable. Again, for more details on that and on boundaries, check out episode 11. I'll link that along with all other sources in the sources for this episode. My next tip for helping someone in addiction is developing the muscle of intuition. When I look at intuition as a muscle, I look at it from a a very different place. I see that sometimes muscles are weak and need to be strengthened. And sometimes they're strong and that's empowering. It's easy, I think, to look at ourselves and say, why did I not know that? Why did I not see that? You know, well, that's shame. Shame doesn't do us any good either. I think that a healthier approach would be to maybe when we're out of trauma and things, we're not spinning, we're in a good, healthy, stable place to look back and to just observe what what we maybe saw that would help us in the future. What was that pattern that maybe we missed somehow or just weren't aware of? I've learned so much about intuition from Brene Brown. In fact, just this one chapter from her book, The Gifts of Imperfection, and it's really brilliant to me. Here's a quote from that. She says, quote, Intuition is not a single way of knowing. It's our ability to hold space for uncertainty and our willingness to trust the many ways we've developed knowledge and insight, including instinct, experience, faith, and reason. Close quote. So if we look at what she's saying, things like experience, you know, sometimes we don't have enough experience to know this was a pattern. But the more that we recognize and have experience to see that it is a pattern, then we can call it what it is better. Probably the most beneficial tool for me in regards to intuition has been to learn how God speaks to me. So to learn revelation and how he reveals things to me. In case it's helpful for anyone to hear, I will share that I don't believe God is all about sunshine and roses. For me, he has warned me in some very heavy ways with this heavy cloud that kind of follows me around. And when I can recognize, oh, that was a warning, that's not depression, that's not anxiety, that is a warning from God. And I'm not saying that people don't have depression or anxiety. This is just my own experience. But when I can recognize that is a warning from God and turn to him and ask, I can then make decisions much better with him. I'd be interested to know if others receive warnings in such ways or if you have different ways of receiving revelation from God. I find, too, that the time that I've spent on my knees in prayer coming to know him allows me to hear him better, allows me to better understand what he's telling me. I love the concept of intuition and recognized after our formal disclosure that I had been right every single time, that every time, not even once that I'd been wrong, um, that my husband was acting out. And so that was very helpful information to, to have. However, it's still a muscle that I am developing and working on and trying to cultivate. 
Episode 8 of the Betrayal Trauma SOS podcast is one of my most listened to ones on intuition. It's called You Were Right and You Knew It. If that interests you, I'll link that below as well. The last tool I'll talk about is one of the most helpful ones, and it's that of surrender. I greatly appreciate uh, the submission from TM, as I mentioned earlier. And again, just for a little context, TM struggles with sex addiction. I really liked what he said here, so I'm going to quote this. One of the most important things is for my wife to recognize it has nothing to do with her. It's not her fault, and it's not her responsibility to fix it. The sooner she can turn her husband's recovery over to God, the better it will be for both of them. When my wife came to accept she can't control my behavior and force me to change, I felt like I had a choice. Remember earlier when I was talking about my husband you know, are you doing your assignments? And and are you doing these things that you're supposed to be doing? Are you attending? Where are you at with this and that? And um, when I could finally let that go and just be like, oh, that's not my burden to carry. I need to take care of me. Maybe I'd be introspective that at that moment I'm hurting. And instead of trying to fix him, I can turn to me and say, oh, I need some self-care. I need to make sure that my needs are met and then I can function on a better level. Besides, as I've already shown you, I could never fix him anyways. I just want you to hear me say this. Just like TM said, you cannot fix your loved one. I know we want to. I know that we think that we have power. And in the end, it might prolong their ability to get help but it does not fix the problem. Part of my surrender was when I could recognize that I was trying to rescue my husband from his addiction. I was trying to save him from it. And my method of doing that a lot of times was to make myself a prisoner so that I could be the warden, (laughs) the self-appointed one to make sure that he's not going to act out and he's not going to do harmful things. Well, Maybe, maybe I did in those moments stop that, but I didn't stop the root issue. And in fact, I think sometimes I made it a longer process. That makes sense. I prolonged the agony. I prolonged his need to get help. I thought that I could fix it. I thought that I could change things. And I thought I had power to make sure my home was one of purity and where addiction wasn't present and things like that. And obviously, I couldn't control it. I had no power. So I'd like to share the message with you that I am still working on for myself, and it's this. This is not your fault. It's not. This has nothing to do with you. However, the after effects absolutely do have something to do with you, and I am so sorry. If you'd like to delve deeper into the subject of surrender, I also have a surrender episode. That's episode 13 titled, The Power of Surrendering. From personal experience, I'm well aware that when I absolutely can surrender, can give that to God, can say this is not my fault, can say I have no power to fix it or I've done all I personally can do, 
He can take that burden from me and the relief is significant. I appreciate you being here today. Next episode, we will be discussing safe ways to face and share emotions. I hope that you will join me for that. If you've enjoyed today's episode, I invite you to subscribe and to maybe consider sharing this episode with someone you know so that they can receive tools for healing as well. Betrayal Trauma SOS can be found on Instagram, Facebook, some content is found on YouTube, and at BetrayalTraumaSOS.com. Let's heal together.